Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. In Season 9, Episode 13 of The Simpsons, entitled The Joy of Sect, an evil cult named the Movementarians brainwash everyone in Springfield. Now in the episode, the hypnotic chant used to keep the people under their spell goes like this. The leader is good. The leader is great. We surrender our will as of this date. And then everyone repeats. Now, I'm beginning to think that the United States, possibly the world, is Springfield, and our government and global overlords are the leader. Of course, they find Homer to be either too stupid or too powerful to fall for that, but they quickly figure out that he's powerless to resist. Na 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 leader. Na 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 leader. And when he stands and shouts, Batman, he then corrects himself to shout, leader. Now, I don't care if you're right or left of center. As a general rule, our leaders are not on the side of the people. You may get an odd one here or there, but generally they're on the side of themselves or their party or power, control, money, ego, pudding. I don't know. If you really look at the policies, the programs, the way we're spoken of, you know, the little people like you and I, we're really just a means to an end. Too stupid to be trusted with anything, really. If you think I'm wrong, if you think I'm being too harsh, if you think that your guy is different, might I suggest that you start repeating, na 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 my guy. On today's episode, first I'm going to get salty, not too much though, but also not too little, and then when all is said and done, oh, oh mark my words, you'll pay. And don't forget about goal update number 10. So, figure out the difference between a pinch and a dash, and then sharpen that pencil and work on saying... Well, that can't be right, because the leader says, here we go. Growing up is an interesting process. It's even more interesting when you're an old, old man like me, grizzled and crotchety, you kids with your tickety-tock and crazy lingo and high pants. Sorry, the high pants, what what does that even mean? Anyway, when you've experienced the process of growing up, then either watched or are in the process of watching a child grow up, you get to see the battle for autonomy, for personhood, essentially for freedom, rage from both perspectives. Now, discounting for the moment that we all must be under God as our authority, that our freedom is found in Christ, looking at this from a purely human worldview, we want our freedom. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told no. We don't really want to work for someone. We buck authority everywhere we can. Now, most of us have resigned ourselves to the general social contract. We generally follow the speed limits. Most of us don't steal from others. We generally work the agreed-upon hours, etc., etc. But really, for the most part, once reaching adulthood, we have a lot of freedom. We can go where we want, eat what we want, go to bed when we want, use our free time as we see fit, and on it goes. Yeah, there are people, organizations, governments, and companies that aren't happy about that, and I kind of think we need to collectively stand up and shout, you're not my mom, you can't tell me what to do. See, found on the WashingtonPost.com headline, we have a huge salt problem. Millions will die without action. WHO warns. I mean, you gotta love the commitment to the narrative, right? Millions will die. You will die. Now, 
You may recognize the World Health Organization from their work in pandering, covering, and advocating for China. You may also recognize them from their agreement with how China was handling the COVID outbreak, uh, you know, by lying and welding people in their homes, by locking them behind gates, by lining them up in the freezing cold every single day to be tested. <laughs> Yay, China. Well, the WHO only wants to save your life. So to do that, you must stop eating salt. Now, as we know, this brand new petrochemical sodium chloride is just destroy. Wait, no, not a petrochemical and not new, a naturally occurring mineral that's been used by man for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Now, the WHO, during the height of COVID, as our Lord and Savior, the vaccine, by newly crafted definition only, came to Earth to save us all, decided to remove any pesky wording from their website about natural immunity. You know, because health. They're also a proponent of gender-affirming care, having changed their stance in 2019 from transgenderism being a mental disorder to it being normal and the affirming care being essential. They also believe that controlling global warming, promoting diversity, equity, inclusion, and pretty much all woke agenda items are of the utmost importance. Now that we've established their credibility, let's see what they'd like for us to do. So the claim is that if governments force the restriction of sodium intake now, we could save 7 million lives by 2030. And that's not per year, that's 7 million people over the next 7.5 years. So just under a million people a year. Now, according to our world and data, in 2019, we had just a few under 60 million deaths globally. So the WHO is claiming that by forcing the reduction of salt, we could save about 1.5% of those people from dying. I wonder how the global overpopulationists feel about that. It's okay, though. They'll figure out other ways to kill us off. But backing up, let's just see what this article said that the WHO were actually claiming. Quote, 7 million people could die of diseases linked to excessive salt consumption before the decade's end, unless governments immediately pass tighter restrictions on salt, a report by the World Health Organization warned Thursday. Oh, okay, so here's the thing. The number of deaths is going up every year. Not a lot each year, but some. But the world population is also going up. So as a percentage, without doing the math, the death-to-population ratio looks to be declining. The population growing at a much faster rate than deaths are climbing. That was thrown a little out of whack by COVID, we know that, but it'll drop back down into the fairly normal range, right? So that said, their estimate of 7 million people over the next seven and a half years would have to take into account global population growth, natural annual death number growth, etc. So although 7 million people is nothing to sneeze at, it's not what they make it sound like. Now, even with that number, they quote the director of the WHO's Department of Nutrition for Health and Development, Francesco Branca, as saying that, quote, excessive sodium intake is the top risk factor for an unhealthy diet, and it is responsible for 1.8 million deaths each year. So 1.8 million, but 7 million over seven and a half years if we do nothing. Something's not adding up there. I find that generally, though, math and making sense aren't really strong suits of people wanting to enact a nanny state type of government control. Facts are secondary. Constructing the correct narrative, that's what's most important. Now, what diseases are linked to excessive salt? Well, they say that 
cardiovascular disease, strokes, high blood pressure, hypertension, uh, aneurysms, coronary artery disease, enlarged heart, heart failure, as well as transient ischemic attack, the TIAs, the mini strokes, dementia, and cognitive impairment, as well as many others, are all linked. They state that cardiovascular disease and strokes account for about 23 million deaths per year. So that would mean they're trying to stop a theoretical 7.8% if the 1.8 million figure is correct, or 3.8% if the 1 million figure is correct. But again, all of this is based on could, not, not will. So how do they propose to do this? Well, this is where the problem for me comes in. Uh, speaking of the study, quote, its authors are calling on governments to implement stricter sodium targets for food, mark salt content more clearly on packaging, and boost public awareness of the health dangers posed by eating a lot of salty food. And, quote, governments could save many of those lives by introducing mandatory limits on the amount of salt the food industry is permitted to add to processed foods. So in order to save an undefined percentage of a small percentage of cardiovascular deaths, which is a moderate percentage of overall deaths, government should crack down on salt for all of us because we should all be punished for our salty crimes. Got it. Reading farther in, we find that apparently in 2013, all 194 members of the WHO agreed to reduce global salt intake by 30% from 2013 levels by 2025. Now, do you remember being asked? I don't remember being asked. Yet, even though every member country agreed, not one of the countries is on track to meet that goal. <laughs> and I say good, but rather than call this a failure and a stupid idea based on sketchy science at best and just move on, now they're thinking of extending the deadline another five years to 2030, and that'll fix it. In fact, only nine members have actually done anything to reduce salt consumption. I didn't look up the nine. I don't want to know for one of them. Although I absolutely know that, uh, that we're one of them. And how do I know? Well, apparently last September, the FDA proposed to once again change the rules of the game. If their proposal goes through, they'll now add limits to added sugars, as well as the current saturated fat and sodium content of food. And only if they meet the ever-narrowing, ever-changing goalposts would food producers be able to label their food as healthy. Now, there was a slight murmuring, shall we say, from the Consumer Brands Association, which represents 1,700 food brands. They wrote a very clear and concise 54-page, quote, comment back to the FDA, basically saying, if you're trying to screw us over, this is how you do it. In fact, the new proposed rules aren't even in line with, quote, well-established nutrition policies and health professional recommendations. In fact, they're so strict that, quote, Things like low-fat chocolate milk and cottage cheese wouldn't make the cut with the new rules. This is a nanny state that's out of control. This is a government and governing bodies that do nothing but create jobs for themselves by forcing everyone to do what they think we should do. The FDA, in my opinion, is another acronymed federal agency that needs to either be disbanded outright or put on pause, rechartered, restructured, fire most of the current employees, including all of the leadership, and then restart with a very, very narrow, very clear charter and very strict oversight. They've gotten out of control. Back to salt, though, the WHO has four main areas that could accomplish their goals of just saving all of those lives. Number one, reformulating foods to contain less salt and setting targets for the amount of sodium in foods and meals. 
Number two, establishing public food procurement policies to limit salt or sodium-rich foods in public institutions, such as hospitals, schools, workplaces, and nursing homes. Number three, front of package labeling that helps consumers select products lower in sodium. And four, behavior change communication and mass media campaigns to reduce salt-sodium consumption. So, nudge us by reformulating, push us by only allowing certain things to be purchased by public institutions, insult us by implying that we're too stupid to turn the package over to look at the overly cluttered nutrition label. I mean, they literally think that we're just too dumb to know that the nutrition info is on the back, and maybe people, oh, I don't know, maybe they don't care. Those that do, they turn it over and look like an absolute boss. The rest, they pick it up and throw it in the cart and move on with life. And then, of course, more indoctrination. This is one of the favorites of the nanny state, just pure indoctrination, re-education, if you will. And again, how insulting. Is there anyone on the planet that hasn't heard that salt is allegedly bad for you? We've all heard this. We all know that the science is settled, that salt just destroys a human body. Or, found on Scientific American, July 8th, 2011, headline, It's time to end the war on salt. Quote, the zealous drive by politicians to limit our salt intake has little basis in science. Per the article, quote, in April 2010, the Institute of Medicine urged the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to regulate the amount of salt that food manufacturers put into products. New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has already convinced 16 companies to do so voluntarily. But if the U.S. does conquer salt, what will we gain? Bland french fries for sure. But a healthy nation? Not necessarily. Continuing on, quote, This week, a meta-analysis of seven studies involving a total of 6,250 subjects in the American Journal of Hypertension found no strong evidence that cutting salt intake reduces the risk for heart attacks, strokes, or death in people with normal or high blood pressure. In May, European researchers publishing in the Journal of the American Medical Association reported that the less sodium that study subjects excreted in their urine, an excellent measure of prior consumption, the greater their risk was of dying from heart disease. Now, interestingly, they give a little historical or hysterical background that we just aren't ever told. Quote, Fears over salt first surfaced more than a century ago. In 1904, French doctors reported that six of their subjects who had high blood pressure, a known risk factor for heart disease, were salt fiends. Worries escalated in the 1970s when Brookhaven National Laboratory's Louis Dahl claimed that he had unequivocal evidence that salt causes hypertension. He induced high blood pressure in rats, by feeding them the human equivalent of 500 grams of sodium a day. Today, the average American consumes 3.4 grams of sodium, or 8.5 grams of salt a day. And they continue from there, but that was 12 years ago, so obviously this is old data. And since then, we've... Uh, Oh, well, wait now, hold on here. Found on NBCNews.com, August 13th, 2014, headline, Pour on the Salt? New research suggests more is okay. Quote, new research suggests healthy people can eat about twice the amount of salt that's currently recommended, or about as much as most already consume. I'm reading a bit in this article here. Quote, 
An international study of more than 100,000 people published Wednesday in the New England Journal of Medicine suggests that while there's a relationship between salt intake and high blood pressure, if you don't already have high blood pressure and you're not over 60 or eating way too much salt, salt won't have much impact on your blood pressure. In fact, people who consumed 3,000 to 6,000 milligrams per day had a lower risk of death and cardiovascular events than those who had more than 6,000 milligrams or less than 3,000 milligrams. Most people consume between 3,000 and 6,000 milligrams of salt per day, but current federal guidelines recommend 1,500 to 2,300 milligrams per day, and the American Heart Association recommends just 1,500. In the new study, researchers found only 4% of respondents in 18 countries took in the recommended sodium levels. The American Heart Association objected to the findings. <laughs> and I guess I'd have to ask, how? How did the American Heart Association object? They, they cannot like the results. That's fine. They can disagree based on specified issues with the data or the collection. But how can you just object to this? I mean, and still claim to be adults. I mean, this is just childish. Salt isn't as bad as we thought. Nuh-uh, shut up, I can't hear you. No, I can't hear you. I mean, that's what I envision, right? The article also mentions, quote, a recent report from the Influential Institute of Medicine also indicated that low salt levels might be problematic. But again, this is old data. I mean, nearly 10 years old. We're much wiser... <clears throat> Found on medicalnewstoday.com, April 25th, 2017, headline, High Blood Pressure, Sodium May Not Be the Culprit. Hmm, okay. This article starts, quote, Salt has long been vilified as the harbinger of hypertension. However, as research into the condition has delved deeper, it is becoming clear that the story is more complex. The latest study in this arena goes some way toward absolving sodium. It continues, quote, following a raft of large-scale studies showing that a high salt intake leads to high blood pressure, the dietary guidelines for Americans set the recommended sodium intake at 2,300 milligrams per day. However, a new batch of studies are bringing this guideline into question, and researchers are now asking whether the relationship between hypertension and salt is so clear-cut. Now, the study incorporated 2,632 men and women, 30 to 64 years old, all with normal blood pressure at the start of the trial. Quote, over the 16-year follow-up period, the researchers observed that the participants who consumed under 2,500 milligrams of sodium each day had higher blood pressure than those who consumed higher quantities of sodium. I mean, 16 years. And then the next paragraph states that the researchers expected to find the opposite result, meaning they were biased in their expectations, but not biased in their conclusions because they allowed the data to speak for itself. I mean, what a concept. Now, it goes on to say, quote, although the findings appear to kick against the status quo, they are in line with other recent studies asking similar questions. Research has shown that there is a J-shaped relationship between cardiovascular risk and sodium. This means that low-sodium diets and very high-sodium diets both carry a higher risk of heart disease. Many people in the United States sit in the middle of this curve where the cardiovascular risk is at its lowest. And no, I won't do the, this must be an old study thing again here because 
we just got one more, right? Found on sciencealert.com, August 10th, 2018. Headline, decades of warnings about our salt intake might have been wrong. So let's just read a bit in this one as well. Quote, according to a study of more than 95,000 people, the vast majority of us aren't being harmed by our level of salt intake, with the tipping point two and a half teaspoons a day. That's the equivalent of five grams or 0.18 ounces, of sodium a day. Many experts would recommend a much lower level, often less than half of that, to cut down the risk of increased blood pressure and associated health issues. Now, according to the new research, however, anything below that 5-gram limit isn't enough to increase the risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke. More than 95% of people in developed nations are below that level, the study found. What's more, even levels of salt intake that are too high can be counteracted by a diet that's rich in fruits, vegetables, dairy products, potatoes, and other potassium-rich foods. Are we worrying too much about salt? They continue by saying that the WHO recommends less than 2 grams of sodium per day, you know, for health. But what have we learned through all of these articles? Less than 2.5 grams per day may actually increase the blood pressure, just like an extreme amount might do the same. So why exactly does the WHO want us to eat much less salt at a rate much lower than all of these studies say is okay, at a level that these studies are saying is just as dangerous as way too much sodium? Which is the side I guarantee I fall on. I probably ate two grams of salt before breakfast, or for breakfast. I don't know, that might be a joke or maybe not. Wouldn't you like to know? So why does the WHO want us to eat less salt at a level that studies suggest may be bad for us? I'll be honest, I don't know. There must be a reason, though. It has to do with something about diversity or equity, environment, something. I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry, but based on what the WHO pushes, what they've shown to believe, what they say is most important, health and saving lives is definitely not what I think their ultimate goal is. I know that's cynical, but can you blame me? I just haven't been able to find it, though. There's a reason they want this consumption to be that ultra-low. Now, I found that this study was partially funded by the government of Sweden and partially by the Resolve to Save Lives project or organization or group or something. The Resolve to Save Lives thing, as of April 2021, now has a justice and inclusion task force that has 15 members, one from Nigeria, the rest from the U.S., nine of which look like your standard whitey. So, Agenda is part of this group. Now, does that play into it? Who knows? Maybe this is a legit program and they're just really thinking they're going to save lives. But if that's the case, why ignore all the other data? Why ignore that salt has been used since nearly the beginning of time? Early in Genesis, we hear about salt. In fact, according to Wikipedia, looking at the history of salt, we see that salt production has been dated back to 6000 BCE, which is the same as 6000 BC, but we can't say before Christ, even though the timing of before common era is still based on the birth of christ and we all know it the earliest known city in europe solnitsata which is in modern day bulgaria appears to have had a salt production facility about 6000 years ago and it really flourished between 4700 and 4200 bc when the town was thought to be destroyed by a sizable earthquake the timing is interesting, don't you think? The fact that the oldest salt production can only be traced back to 6000 BC, and then it was apparently destroyed by a massive earthquake around 4500 BC. I mean, isn't that interesting? Hmm. 
But we've used salt for so many things. We've consumed salt for our entire existence. We used to salt our meat to preserve it. We've had much saltier food in the past, right? Because we're, we're cutting it back now. But when you look at the statistics, the number of deaths due to cardiovascular disease, well, they keep going up. If we've reduced sodium in foods, wouldn't we see that death rate start to flatten out? An increasing number of people, but a shrinking percentage of death, right? Bigger question. Aren't there, like, infinity other things we should be focused on? And even if salt consumption was the leading cause of death, who gives the government the right to force health on us? That's not their job, is it? What if I uh, were to propose that without repentance and faith in the God of the Christian Bible, every single person will go to hell for eternity? So we must force everyone to go to church on Sunday mornings. We must eliminate other religions. We must bring back prayer in the schools. We must make Bible reading mandatory. Would any of these agencies agree to help me in my cause? The answer is uh, no. No, they wouldn't. They'd say that this is overstepping their authority, that they have no right to tell anyone to do these things, and I absolutely agree. We are not called to force anything on people. Now, we can enforce speed limits and drunk driving laws and various other laws because those things don't just harm the self, they can harm others as well. So there are laws to keep an order, a peace, and a general safety in society. So why would I be against mandatory vaccines then, for instance? Well, because again, an individual can get a vaccine. If they work, that person is protected. I cannot be forced to protect myself from myself. If I want to put copious amounts of salt on my food, and I do, uh, that's my choice. If I want to go drink myself into oblivion in my basement every night, well, that's on me. That, that's something I don't do. If I want to go drive 100 miles per hour through a construction zone, well, I'm putting others at risk, so no, I, I can't do that. Now, we know that as Christians, we're supposed to obey our government. We know that those in power are put in position by God for his purposes. Romans 13, 1-7 is the typical go-to passage. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And that's what we're always told. Just do what you're told because government has been put in by God, so if you make a fuss, you're complaining about God, and you'll be judged and incur wrath. Besides, they're there as a servant of God to go after the bad, not the good. Now, I'm going to tell you my problem with this interpretation. This is not theology. This is, at best, theology by Dan, so you could probably just discount it as wrong right now, but let me give you my view anyway. The end of the passage says to whom is owed. For some examples, taxes, revenue, respect, and honor. 
Paul says in this passage that those in power have been put in by God. And if you resist, you will resist who God put in, and you'll incur judgment. But also that this person is God's servant for our good. The problem I have is that every Christian out there will tell you that you follow those rules until they command you to do something the Bible tells you not to do, or they forbid you from doing something the Bible tells you to do. But that's not what this passage tells us. That caveat isn't in there. So I jump back to the end of the passage, respect and honor to whom it is owed. If the person in charge is not acting as God's servant and is a terror to those doing good rather than those doing wrong, are they due honor and respect? Now, I'd say no. And isn't that what everyone says when they say you disobey your government when they contradict the Bible? That the person in power is not acting as God's servant. He's not due honor and respect. He's not advocating goods. Thus, we disobey. Now, I have personally found a contradiction on how we deal with these situations. Now, that said, I'm not saying that restricting my salt is something that we revolt over. I'll just add more salt after the fact if I want. And if they take that away from me, well, I guess I'll just eat unhappy food. I'm also not saying that we should ignore the Bible and just do what our governing overlords tell us to do. I think that we must stand for truth, stand for the Bible, and stand for freedom. The sodium thing is more of a contradiction in or a misapplication of what the purpose is of government and various agencies. I just wanted to tackle the scriptural go-to passage because anytime the idea of telling the government no comes up, so does that passage. So when you look at the WHO, when you look at the US FDA or the US government, they promote gender transitions for kids. They find no issues with marijuana usage. They say that we shouldn't smoke cigarettes. We can drink though. We can drink to excess if we want, but we shouldn't do that sort of thing a whole lot. And we shouldn't act up and do bad things if we're drunk, but we're drunk and they think that's fine from time to time. We shouldn't have sugar or salt or saturated fat, but we should eat bugs. We should eat plant-based meat, which has a massive amount of salt and various chemicals in it. We've got tons of TV drugs with a million side effects that are sort of approved. We get drugs pulled from the shelf if bad people use them badly, or if there's an indication that there might be something unsafe. But the COVID vaccine, a drug with the largest indicator ever that there's something wrong, well, that's just fine. And uh, you must take it. And the contradictions are endless. There's no rhyme or reason. It's just whatever fits the overall plan. So this is where I think that we need to make the best choices possible. I absolutely agree that if a government says to do something contradictory to the Bible, we must rebel. As for losses of freedom or infringements on our liberties, I think as Americans, we absolutely have the right to fight back. Keep in mind that most evangelicals today wouldn't have agreed with the American Revolution, not based on the current criteria. The British weren't telling us to do something contradictory to the Bible, except maybe enslave people. That was forced on the colonies by the British. And although it was proposed, it was decided to not eliminate slavery immediately upon independence so as to not split the country in half and allow various other countries to walk back in and take back over. No, the, the British were simply too heavy-handed. They infringed on our liberties. They broke their own rules, their constitution, with regard to the colonists. Per the current interpretation of the Romans 13 passage, we should not have broken free. Now, most people, most Christians, won't argue that point, though, because they agree with declaring independence, as do I. 
Regarding the salt thing, I know this kind of went down a rabbit trail here. Look, I don't know why they want to take all of the uh, stuff away that makes food yummy. It may be a control thing. It may be a health thing. It may be one more step to getting us to eat bugs to save the planet. I don't really know, but I do know that they don't have the right to force any of us to be healthy anymore then they have the right to force any of us to worship any specific deity. This is for us to choose individually. Now, from a practical view, as I've said many times, we need to dig deeper, not just stop at the headlines. We need to try to understand if what we're being told is fact. In the case of sodium is bad for you, well, maybe or maybe not. We need to read farther and investigate more. We need to look for the counter-arguments to a position, even our own personal views, to determine if what we're being told or if our perception of an issue is accurate. And then I think we need to weigh it against our constitutionally guaranteed rights and ultimately, in light of the Bible, and make decisions that we believe are best, decisions that don't violate our conscience. That could mean, in some cases, capitulating to the demand, Maybe it means political rebellion through things like campaigning and voting. It could be open rebellion, like refusing to wear a mask or refusing an injection. Now, I understand the standard Christian view regarding authority, and like I said, I'm probably wrong, but I've just not yet been convinced by the argument because of the contradiction in the application. So I'll close with this. In the words of the great Patrick Henry, loosely paraphrased, give me salt or give me death. Who's with me? Oh, hey, didn't see you there. <laughs> Classic. Anyway, welcome back to the American Genesis, part 14 in our series looking at the amendments to the Constitution, episode 32 overall in our look at the founding documents of this country. You know, those old, dusty documents that were written by Bible-clutching, gun-toting Republicans that hated women and skin colors that weren't bright printer paper white, and enforced the Christian-or-die rule and love the Nazi party and all the other things that most of the leftists, regardless of education or IQ and our current population believed to be true? <laughs> Seriously, I double-dog dare you to uh, go ask your favorite lefty friend any of those things. I guarantee they believe at least some of them. Anyway, we're just over halfway through the amendments. Having covered 15 of the 27 thus far, seems amazing to me that there have only been 27 modifications, slight or otherwise, to the founding document of our country in nearly 250 years. So, over the first 15 amendments, we've covered things like freedom of speech and religion, the right to own guns, the right to privacy, legal and judicial rights, state rights, as well as modifying the way presidential elections are done. And the last three we've looked at are arguably some of the most consequential and most important amendments after the Bill of Rights, which makes these last three even possible, those that abolish slavery and codify the personhood of all humanity. The forethought put into the Constitution and then the very important additions thus far have been momentous. But now, now we've reached a dark day in our history, a day that the Constitution was amended not for good but for evil. No, I'm not talking about the alcohol one. Sheesh. You know, the first step to fixing a problem is admitting that you have one. Just saying. No, we're talking about the 16th Amendment, which reads, quote, The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. You know... It's not so much that I'm mad at the government. It's the states. They had to ratify this thing. I mean, what the heck, states? Come on. So, 
This amendment was sent to the states on July 12, 1909. It was finally ratified nearly four years later on February 3rd, 1913. As of now, this is the third longest amount of time it's taken to ratify an amendment. So taxation in the United States has always been a touchy subject. We know that the Bible tells us to pay taxes to whom taxes are due. The government has their right to levy taxes on their people. The government is an entity that doesn't generate any of its own revenue, but it's expected to do things, so it does need money. I've mentioned the tithe a handful of times before, saying that I happen to fall into the camp of those that believe there is no mandate to tithe in the New Testament. When you look into the Old Testament, the tithe that actually speaks of is made of three components, if I remember correctly, and it equates to an annual rate of about 23%. So if you want to tithe biblically, you need to be giving 23%. But that 23% went to the theocratic government, the priesthood, the temple, which not only ran the religious aspects of the nation, but also the governmental aspect of the nation. So our taxes today are roughly equivalent to what the taxes were back then. Now, jumping ahead to the colonies, taxes were one of the biggest sticking points, one of the biggest drivers for our declaring independence from the Brits. Now, as an independent country, the founders put in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, the power for Congress to impose, quote, taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. As long as they were uniform throughout the U.S., it was fine, and in order to make them fair, the taxes had to be levied in proportion to the population of each state. Most of the taxes collected prior to the 16th Amendment were excise taxes, or taxes on very specific goods or services. Now, For a short time, a property tax was also attempted. It didn't go over too well, so that didn't last long. Then we come to the Civil War. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but fighting a war, civil or otherwise, is not cheap. So, a few very limited taxes, limited in both percent and duration, were enacted. The first was a personal income tax as part of the Revenue Act of 1861. This wasn't the first income tax proposed. That was actually done in 1812 by then Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Dallas to help fund the War of 1812, but that was denied. In 1861, however, the act was passed. This act levied a flat tax of 3% on an annual income above $800. Now, this act was in place until it was repealed in 1872, but it was actually kind of overwritten by a second act, cleverly named the Revenue Act of 1862, which had a graduated tax of 3 to 5% on incomes above $600 annually. The second act had a termination date built in of 1866, at which point the first act kicked back in, which, as I said, was rescinded in 1872. But the blood was now in the water, right? The federal sharks started to work themselves into a little taxing frenzy there. This was free money and a fairly large source of it. Now, in the 20 years following the end of the Revenue Act of 1861, multiple parties and groups wanted the U.S. to enact a permanent graduated income tax on the population. And let me give you the background of a few of these groups that really wanted this 
progressive tax. The Greenback Movement, which was a movement made up of primarily farmers that, from what I can tell, just wanted more currency circulating around in the United States. It appears that the extra cash floating around helped them to demand higher prices for their goods. We could think of that today as inflation. This is what we'd view as a very liberal viewpoint. We're seeing this exact thing from the far-left socialist wing of the Democrat Party today, which is most of the Democrat Party today, the idea of just print money and, and, you know, pay for everything. It'll be fine. And we're seeing the results of this today, this thinking, because we're dealing with very high inflation and ever-increasing interest rates and prices going through the roof on everything. You know, it's fine. Another group was the Labor Reform Party, also known as the Socialist Labor Party of North America. This, being a party of socialist ideology, believes that uh, what's theirs is theirs and what's uh, yours and mine is uh, also theirs. The socialists are summed up generally by saying, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. So, only the part of your income that you absolutely need, and that's not for you to decide, is really yours. The rest should be surrendered to some all-knowing overlord to benevolently redistribute it to others as he or she sees fit. Again, a socialist party is a far-left party. Next, I have the People's Party, also known as the Populist Party, just another far left-wing party. They actually kind of grew out of the Greenback Movement, as well as a few other parties. Essentially, another socialist-based party. And finally, let's see if you ever heard of this one, the Democrat Party. Uh, we're still cursed with this thing to this day. Uh, they've been moving farther and farther left and farther and farther socialist as time goes on. But they've always been socialist-based. Now, I know that people my age, say middle-aged, can look at our parents and say, oh, yeah, my dad always voted Democrat, but that was a completely different party back then. And, yeah, they weren't as insane as they are today, but as I've pointed out before, they've always been the party of racism, the party of just general evil. It just hasn't been as blatant as they have been in the last decade or so. So I want you to notice that there wasn't a right-leaning or a right-wing party that was ever pushing to permanently take a cut of our income, especially on a sliding scale that, uh, oh, so fairly took more money from those deemed rich because they can afford it anyway. Now, those on the left argued that the current form of taxation, the excise tax or the tariff, was disproportionately harming the poor, which is still one of the favorite tropes, the favorite arguments of the left. So to make things fair, we need to tax certain income levels at a greater percentage. This is the difference between equality and equity. See, equality would say that we would all be taxed on an equal basis, an equal percentage. Whether I make a thousand dollars a year or a billion dollars a year, I would pay 10% of my income in taxes. That's equality. Equity says that whether I make $1,000 a year or $1 billion a year, I should either pay taxes or receive money back from the government so we all end up with making, say, $20,000 a year. Now, the progressive form of income tax that we have today doesn't quite do that, but that's the direction that those on the left have been and would also like to go. So, 
In June of 1909, in an address to Congress, Republican President William Howard Taft proposed a 2% income tax on corporations through an excise tax and a constitutional amendment to allow an income tax similar to what was enacted during the Civil War. By July 1909, Congress came to an agreement and passed the resolution proposing the 16th Amendment, which was then submitted to the states. Now, generally, those associated with the parties I previously mentioned, which were the Southern and Western Democrat or leftist parties, well, they supported this idea. They generally liked the idea because they were typically those that were poorer. So this would put the burden on uh, other people. Then we had past Republican President uh, Teddy Roosevelt get on board with this idea. Keep in mind, though, Teddy Roosevelt was not really a Republican. In fact, he started the modern-day Progressive Party in the United States. He was not a conservative. Um, he was the start of the movement that includes people like Woodrow Wilson, which we'll talk about in a moment, FDR, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton. Teddy and his compatriots, or comrades, as it were, use the same justification our current Republican Party uses to overspend, the military. They argued that the money was needed so as to build up the military to defend against increasing military might halfway around the world. Now, to be fair, they weren't necessarily wrong, but to be fair in the other direction, should we have been involved in the world wars to begin with? That's a different subject that we'll likely never tackle here, but it's a question, right? They also felt that the central government could do better guiding of the economy of the nation if they had a bigger slice of the pie to play with. And of course, we see how well that we've done ever since, right? In 1912, the country elected one of the most evil presidents in our history, Woodrow Wilson. This was the man, to give you a little background, that re-segregated the military, you know, blacks and whites, and also put a theater in the White House with the first movie to ever play being entitled The Birth of a Nation. Sounds great, right? It was a uh, silent film that glorified the Ku Klux Klan. That was Wilson's favorite movie. Uh, he was a racist. He was an evil man. Anyway, the country was left-leaning at this point in our history, which helped to push the income tax amendment over the ratification edge. At this time, 36 states were needed to ratify it, and prior to the November 1912 election, 34 states had ratified the amendment. After November 1912 into early March 1913, when Wilson took over, another eight states ratified the amendment, well over the required number needed. Interestingly enough, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Utah, and Virginia subsequently have considered the amendment and rejected it, and Florida and Pennsylvania have never even considered the amendment. It doesn't matter, though. They're part of the country. They have to follow the rules also. Now, through the years, many promises have been made regarding income taxes. It'll never be more than X percent. It'll never be applied to anyone making Y dollars. Those have all been lies. Right and left. Those have all been lies. So when the income tax was first instituted in October of 1913, it was a 1% tax on those making over $3,000, which is about $92,000 today. And it was a 6% tax on those making more than 500000 or about $15.5 million today. By 1918, the top income tax earners had a slight increase, thanks to uh, President Woodrow, to 77% for those making over $1 million or $21.5 million per year today. But this, it was just to finance World War I, and 
And look, that wasn't a lot of people, and, and those people can afford it. Then the evil leftist Wilson had a massive stroke. In fact, he wasn't even allowed to be seen by his party leadership for much of his second term. All communication was done through his wife. Now, we know now that she was actually the one running the country for much of the second term. In fact, she held his hand and signed his name for him when he had to sign bills. And she intended for him to run for a third term. But the Democrat Party leadership, who at this point knew exactly what was going on, told her that if she even attempted to do that, they'd expose what was going on. Woodrow, via his wife, bowed out of that next election. Are we seeing any parallels with uh, with Biden and that uh, succubus Jillybean? Uh, sorry, sorry, shouldn't say that. Dr. Succubus Jillybean. After Wilson came Republicans Warren G. Harding, who died of what appears to be a massive heart attack two years into his term, at which point Calvin Coolidge, one of the best presidents this country has ever known, took over. The combination of those men moved the top tax rate down to 58%, then 25%, and then 24% by 1929. Now, you may recognize the year 1929 as the year that we had the Wall Street crash and the start of the Great Depression. The top income tax rate was raised back up to 63% by the end of Republican President Herbert Hoover's term, and by 1944, in the middle of progressive or socialist, far-leftist President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's tenure, the top rate was now... 94% on those making 200000 or $3.5 million today and up. Now, I don't make $3.5 million or up today, but I can't even imagine a 94% tax rate. I mean, I know that the progressive rate means that below that figure was taxed at a lower rate, but can you imagine making, say, $13.5 million today, and out of that extra $10 million that you made above the tax bracket, you get to keep... 600,000 out of the 10 million you made. What's the point? I mean, seriously, why, why, why even try? In fact, the effective tax rate for these high, high earners was about 70%, meaning if they made over the equivalent of three and a half million today, they'd get to take home about a million. That's crazy. That is, uh, it's the word I'm looking for. Uh, it's, it's a thing. Theft. That's theft. So, over the last 70 or 80 years, the income tax rates have fluctuated up and down based on who has control, left or right. The left typically raises taxes, just like Biden has done. The right typically lowers taxes, just like Trump has done. And both have their own philosophy as to what works best. The problem is they're not working from the same desire. What the government should want is to make the most money they can while allowing the money makers to keep as much as possible. The right has proven over and over again that lower tax rates, to a point of course, allows we the people to keep more money, which spurs growth and investment by corporations and entrepreneurs, which brings in higher revenue for the government. It happens every single time. Taxes, both personal income and corporate, etc., etc., taxes are lowered. Now, that isn't the game the left is playing, though. They're playing the socialist game of equity. They don't want rich or super rich people or companies to exist, present company excluded amongst their themselves. They want that money redistributed to the takers as they consider the money makers to be evil and greedy. Not sure what's more greedy, keeping a massive amount of money you've earned or stealing a massive amount of money you did nothing to earn. 
I guess like, uh, you know, how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? The world will never know the answer to this question either. As of today, for the last 30 years or so, the top marginal tax rates have stabilized to be between 35 and 40 percent. The bottom rate has stabilized between 10 and 15 percent. Are those good and reasonable? I don't know. Maybe. Now, there are other ideas out there that would eliminate most of the unfathomable tax code, including the flat tax and the fair tax. The flat tax is very simple. Everyone pays the same percentage on their income. Let's say that's 20 percent. Whether you make 10000 a year or infinity dollars a year, you grab a postcard size tax return form, write down your income, multiply that by the 20%, determine if you've paid enough or too much, boom, done. The other idea, the fair tax, would be a national sales tax. So income taxes would go away and a national sales tax of, say, 20% would be placed on everything. Of course, there are differing views on, you know, not taxing essentials or what to do with food or things like that, but generally the sales tax would be placed on everything. Now, this would actually tax the rich a good deal more as they buy more and more expensive things than the rest of us. This would actually allow us to have a say in how much we pay in taxes. So if you make, say, $120,000 a year, and I use that number because the number of months divides nicely into that, you would literally literally take home $10,000 a month. Now, of course, you'd take out insurance and retirement, you know, things like that. But the rest of your income would be yours to do with as you chose. Then, if you want to buy that new car, tack 20% onto it for sales tax. You want to buy that big screen? The book, the candy bar, tack 20% onto it. You have a lot more money to work with, but you pay more when you purchase stuff. It's a better system. Now, there's pros and cons to both of those systems. I'd be fine with either or even a combination of both, a 10% flax and a 10% fare. Any of those possibilities would be better than the unmanageable tax system we have today. Anyway, that's the 16th Amendment, one of, if not the most evil amendments in our country's history. Just a dark, dark day. And with all this uh, tax talk, it reminds me, I've got less than a month to get my taxes done and submitted, <laughs> so I better uh, order this year's version of TurboTax and get moving on this. So with that, I'll say, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Week number 10. Okay, quick poll. How many of you are New Year's resolutions makers? And out of you, how many of you are still actually sticking with your resolutions? All right, now, how many of you are goal setters? And same question, how many of you are still working toward your goal? I'd actually be interested in hearing from you. It's not just like a rhetorical question or anything. Resolution or goal, still sticking with it or not. I mean, you could comment on the podcast, email, whatever. I mean, I'm not a resolution maker. Those to me seem more spontaneous, more emotion-based, more easily broken within, uh, oh, well, better luck next year kind of attitude. That's just to me. Maybe you're different. Goals, to me, seem to be more thoughtful, more reasoned, and longer term with the understanding that it's not going to be perfect on the way to that goal. 
Now, you've seen me have a little trouble getting started on some of these. You've seen me cycle up and down a bit on a few and realize the goals I'm letting you keep me honest on are only some of my goals. I've got some other goals that are more personal goals that I'm sitting at various levels of success or failure on. So don't think I'm just a goal monster here. One of my spiritual gifts is procrastination. Uh, which is why I do this segment, because whether anyone is listening to this part or not, I believe that I'm talking directly to you, giving you a report on my week, and it matters. I don't want to disappoint you. It sounds silly, but, but that's honestly true. So, after 10 weeks, two and a half months, where am I sitting? Well, as always, let's start with weight. Last week, after nine weeks and 20 pounds, I took a week and thought, I'm going to pause my journey. Now, I know, I know. Yeah. Oop, he's given up. No, I, I haven't haven't given up. But for a variety of reasons, I was only able to work out three days last week. I think one of those days I was just like, uh, no. But the other three, there just wasn't a way I could fit it in. Just the day just wouldn't let me do it. Now, I also had a couple days where I wanted to indulge some cravings that have just kind of been building up over time. So, a little bit of overeating of chocolate. Uh, we had ribeyes for the first time in forever and homemade mashed potatoes, one of the kids' favorite things. And then one day I had a big bowl of popcorn, which I do not make in a healthy way at all. So, I had a couple days that were somewhat over my calorie goal and one day where I just blew it out of the water. And I'll just say this. It was glorious. Oh, man, it was good. But as of Sunday and even more so Monday, it was back on that tired old beaten down horse again one more time. Now, on the other days, I actually did pretty well, calorie wise at least. And although I averaged over my calorie goal for the week, I was still under an average of 1,750 calories per day. So I still managed to lose 1.2 pounds last week. I was really happy about that, I'll be honest, because I really had prepared myself to either break even, that was my hope, uh, with last week, or maybe just gain a tiny bit. But with that loss, I'm now down 21.2 pounds in 10 weeks, moving the decimal point one place to the left, that's an average of 2.12 pounds per week, which puts me at 6.2 pounds ahead of my goal, and that puts my actual weight at 193.2 pounds, give or take 20 pounds to go. So this one is still a dark green. Now on to reading. Okay, now you're going to think I'm cheating here, but I'm really not. I'm going to explain this to you. I'm actually trying to focus on this area more heavily. So over the last week, I added 274 pages. Now, as I said last week, I wanted to start reading some lighter books, lighter topic books in the morning or when I'm in the bed, you know, right before I go to sleep. The books that I don't have to dedicate as deep of a focus uh, and then try to read my heavier topics either in the afternoons or the earlier evenings or on the weekends. So that's what I've been trying to do. So what have I finished here? Well, this week I finished two books about Doctor Who. Yes, I'm a nerd. The first one is one that I've had on the shelf for a couple of years entitled Doctor Who, the book of Hooniversal Records. <laughs> Very clever. This is the official timey-wimey edition. <laughs> if you know the newer series of Doctor Who, you'll understand that reference. Anyway, this one was a 200-plus page kind of Guinness book of records all about Doctor Who. It had a lot of illustrations, but a lot of writing over the top of those illustrations, and it's a larger-sized book, so it's a legit 200-plus pages. I really enjoy this one because it was written prior to the 13th Doctor, which is the female Doctor, 
who was just awful as an actor and Doctor Who isn't a female anyway, so that's wrong. And the writing was awful and the storylines were terrible and the agenda was so blatant. It was just gross. So since this book didn't have any of that in there, it was really good. It gave records regarding the making of, the actors, etc. And it gave records inside the storylines and the life of Doctor Who as well. So it was a really good mix. Now, the second book I finished was called The Doctor Who Atlas. I just got this one for Christmas. Now, this was a 77-page book, large pages. It's a large book, but much less writing. Um, it was also good until it started getting into the 13th Doctor, and then the authors started pushing the same agendas. You could tell the author was all on board because she picked some very specific episodes to elaborate on. Ugh. Other than that, and that was by far the minority of the book. The book was very interesting. It went into various planets, ships, etc. that were inside of the story of Doctor Who. And I learned stuff from both of these books about the original series and the restarted series starting back in 2005. So they were really good overall. Now, I counted those 77 pages as 77 pages because I also decided last week that I wanted to read through the three-volume complete series of Farside cartoons that I've also had sitting there forever, which that's like, I don't even know, I didn't add it up. It's like 13, 1,400 pages of single-panel comics, usually four of those comics per page. Now, they don't take a lot of reading. Some of them take a little bit more work to figure out what in the world he was trying to say. But come on, I'm not counting those 1,000 plus pages, and uh, and those take time. So I'm taking my 77 pages for the Atlas. It'll all even out. Additionally, I started my next lighter book. I'm 17 pages into that. I'll tell you about that when I'm done. And I'm 74 pages into my more heavy book. Um, that one I've made a lot of highlights in so far. Excellent book. Again, I'll tell you about that when I'm done. So where did I find this time? Well, to be honest... I've pulled that time away from mindlessly scrolling through the internet. I haven't played my silly games on my phone in probably nearly a week now. And if you'd notice that my podcasts are coming out a bit more random or, or at least a bit later than usual, yeah, well, I'm trying to get timing to accomplish everything kind of worked out. So my reading percentage as compared to my goal is now sitting at 140.8%, up from 110.3% last week. Some other things are kind of slipping and sliding around. But hey, I'm moving this one back to a dark green. Now, moving on to Bible reading, again, last week was not as good as some past weeks, uh, but I've still slightly improved on my pace, sitting at 156.3% as compared to my goal pace, up 2.5% from last week. This one is still a dark green. Now, moving forward, I'm tossing two ideas around for what to do next for Bible reading when I get through this daily Bible, and I'm leading toward reading through the Bible chronologically. I found a good plan on blueletterbible.com. You can tell a good chronological plan if when it gets into areas like the Kings and Chronicles and various prophets, it's grabbing verses just here, there, and everywhere and really mixing them in to try to get that timeline right. Same with the Gospels in the New Testament. It shows you that the plan was written to really merge that whole chronological story into that one unified timeline. Now, I haven't locked in on that yet, but that's what I'm leaning towards, so more on that to come. Finally, devotions. This is the fourth week in a row that I've read them all seven days in the morning in a row, and I'm so far behind in the devotionals I currently have just sitting on the shelf, and I still get a new one every month. I did a little bit of rough calculating, and it would probably be two years before I caught up to what's being sent to me every month. And uh, truth be told, I have some other older back issues that I didn't even start with that I've never looked at 
that I could go back to if I needed to. But that's something I'll tackle in a couple of years, I guess, at the very earliest, assuming that's what I'm still doing. Anyway, this one's staying a dark green also. And that's my update for week 10. Wasn't kidding when I said that I really do envision giving you personally a report on my progress. And wow, does it help me to push to make sure I'm not bringing a lazy slug of a report to you. So thank you for listening and, and pushing me without even knowing that you are. And now I need to go work out. It's after 9.30. It's getting close to 10 o'clock. It's going to be a late night, like most of them pretty much are. So, so as always, any comments, questions, concerns, let me know. And uh, I got to get going. So, uh, okay, bye.